They also didn't have the word for rape. They also didn't have our English words for certain things. Just because they don't have the words for it doesn't mean that they didn't understand that something wasn't right or that what happened to me here is affecting what I'm doing now today. Welcome to It Means What It Means, the podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. You may have noticed that we have a little clip on the front end of the episode. That's the thing that I'm playing with. I had been thinking about it, and then I found out Riverside will generate those clips for me. Part of my reticence to start doing that was that I wasn't sure how to select the best clips, and they seem to have done a pretty good job. So from here on out, that's going to be a thing that I'm going to be trying. Today's guest is Alexiana Fry. We discuss her book, Trauma Talks in the Hebrew Bible, Speech Act Theory, and Trauma Hermeneutics. I think a really good way to enhance this episode is to follow it up by listening to the Jenny Matheny, I believe is how you say her name, episode of OnScript. I will link that in the show notes, but you can find that pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts. That's It's been recommended here on the podcast before. I know Chris Tilling is one of the hosts of it, so absolutely go check that out. They do good stuff over there. They have a rotating cadre of hosts and it's, it's interesting. It's not like here where you're stuck with the same voice every time. A uh, ton of recommendations in here. This was a really fun conversation. I accept full responsibility for all pointless digression. I really look forward to having Alexiana Fry back if she's ever interested. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Alexiana Fry. Alexiana Fry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a pleasure to have you. Before we get going, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, gosh. That was not on the set list of questions that you sent me. So It's been in every episode so far, and I know that you are a diehard fan of, of the six episodes I have out. No, yeah, just give a little bio. I don't want to tell yes, your bio. Yes. It's your story. Okay. I've got a snapshot. Yes. My name is Alexium Fred. I am from the United States, but currently residing in Copenhagen, Denmark for my postdoc at the University of Copenhagen. So I'm currently working on a project that is called Divergent Views of Diaspora in Ancient Judaism. And you'll probably see my work move a little bit into that realm in the next few years as I work with the books of Esther and Ezekiel specifically. But my PhD work was done at the University of Stellenbosch in Stellenbosch, South Africa. And I focused in on migration, trauma, and gender, uh, which is often a tool of my own analysis, because I think it is worthy, and discussed more Deuteronomistic history and uh, everything that goes along with it in Judges 19 and in Hosea. And really, that's about it for me, other than the fact that I have two pugs that run my life, and they are my boss. And I am also a registered yoga teacher. Fun fact, I did that while I was finishing up my PhD program because I could, and we'll talk about this for sure, I could feel some of the weight of the material I was working on and needed a way to process it with my body. 
And of course, being an academic, I then felt the need to become a teacher a bit myself and then continued on with some further education, even in that area for more trauma-informed practices, somatic-based therapies, et cetera. But that's me in a nutshell. I'm boring otherwise for fun. I love Pokemon games still. So I'm just a super nerd. There's that. Interesting people always say they're boring. I think the yoga thing is an interesting transition for me because when you said that, I remembered around 2015, I was I started doing Bikram yoga in addition to yeah. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which I had been doing for a few years by that point. I discovered a problem with yoga. So I would leave Jiu-Jitsu and feel banged up, but feel really serene mentally. Yeah. And I would leave yoga and feel really good physically, but it was almost like what is it, a poultice that can pull out poisons or something like toxins? Like I had felt like psychological poison was being pulled out of me and I stopped going because I couldn't, I couldn't process the way that I felt unless I went straight to jujitsu. And I was like, if this helps the inside part, I'll take the outside beating a thousand times Yes. uh, when I get the opportunity. So, okay, I want to put a pin in trauma. Because yes. I feel like it's because, because who wants to talk about trauma? But Me. so you, yeah, well, wait, but you, so you call it out in the book. And actually, mm-hmm. so the subject of the conversation today is your book, Trauma yeah. Talks in the Hebrew Bible, Speech Act Theory and Trauma Hermeneutics. You call it out in the introduction that biblical studies is by its very nature interdisciplinary. I, I want to camp out there a little bit so that people don't so that people understand why are we having a conversation about trauma? Yeah, that's a great question. And the unfortunate reality is I included it because it is, and I think I even mentioned the negative comment that was made toward me and that biblical studies can come off as parasitic in nature because it leeches off of other disciplines in order to make sense of its own. And I think if I want to sum this up in short, if we can keep biblical studies, if we want to just keep it in quote unquote traditional biblical studies, right? So then you have the history component. Okay, that's a discipline, right? So you have a history component of biblical studies, but then we also have translation. Okay, that's another component in that field in and of itself. Both of these fields in and of itself are so vast. There's so much theory involved in how we approach both of those concepts and disciplines. And those are just two. So if you wanted to stick into traditional biblical scholarship and we're just doing bare bones history and bare bones translation, that's not to mention the fact that we are working with a literary text and not to mention the fact that quote unquote traditional biblical studies often comes with flavors of religiosity as well. And so you have just to start multiple disciplines with their hands in the bucket. Now, we're also dealing with humans in history. What's fun is I got to get in inner workings on some of the conversations being had in history. Discipline when it comes to understanding humans of the past, right? How, how do we do that? And when we talk about trauma, there are a lot in my field who, for better or for worse, and this is highly contested still now, 
don't believe that we can read or psychologize these people. And I maintain even in my book, I agree. Everything is pure conjecture. We don't know. And yet I think it's also part of our humanity that we continue to grasp, that we continue to attempt to try to know, that we continue to hypothesize or imagine what would it been like in this time if I was to put myself in their shoes and we can talk about putting oneself in one's shoes and the problems with that language in and of itself. But humans are made up of so much. And so our study of even ancient humans is also shyly multifaceted. I think it's sad when people deny the fact that there are so many other avenues by which we have not even touched um, the biblical corpus with. And it's also exciting that there's still so much that we have to do. If at at least it keeps me um, working and (laughs) in a job that there's still so much work that we can do. But again, I, I think at the same time as at acknowledging that biblical studies is highly interdisciplinary in nature or transdisciplinary, dare I say it, um, because it does transgress a lot of boundaries. I think it's important that we maintain that a lot of our work, we will never be able to fully know if it's correct or not. We will we, never be able to go, this is exactly what the author meant. Everything and, and we'll talk about this even in light of CJAC theory as well. Everything is fluid and mutable. And that's the beauty and the horror of everything that we do. I've said a lot on this. I'm so sorry. You, you could keep going. I didn't ask you here to listen to me talk about your book. This, this is true. And this is my yeah. whole shtick. Keep going. It, it sounds like you're not done. Are you stopping as a formality because you think you have to? That's a great question. And thank you for that introspective question for me. But (laughs) I think given that we're going to keep flowing with our conversation, I could say a lot more, but it was, it would lead into a lot of the other aspects that sort of can be separated in containers rather than me verbally vomiting everything all all at once. (laughs) I'm okay either way. So. If you would rather separate things into containers. here, You know what? I'll I'll, I'll say this. Okay. But I will say this. This is my attitude on when you come up on someone in a doorway and you're in each other's way and one of you has to yield and the other person says, I'm sorry. My universal reaction to that now is you're allowed to take up space. So you are. That's what this podcast is for. You are allowed to take up space. Yeah. Okay. But we can. Okay, let's, here's a tub for you to throw some stuff into then. Long a tub. Okay, yeah, so do I. <laughs> let's talk about Judges 19. Or, it, well, actually, okay. dealer's, dealer's choice. Would you rather start with Hosea, which you do in the book, or Judges 19? You pick one and go. Then talk about them at the same time. Okay, I can talk about them at the same time. The hook that I have for reading them together is in this in this phrase of the sin of Gibeah. The sin of Gibeah is found in Hosea 9 and 10. Um, and because of this phrase, the sin of Gibeah, people have been um, trying to speculate what exactly that sin is for 
I want to say the earliest article I could find, which um, who knows, it could have been talked about. <laughs> that was in the 60s. Paper was done on the many things that the sin of Gibeah could be. And since then, it's been either untouched or if it is touched, um, the sin of Gibeah becomes um, what is commonly known as like an anti-Saul polemic, uh, which it does frequently pop up in scripture, a uh, very anti-King Saul. I think that's short-sighted. Um, actually, I don't know if that's a phrase that's appropriate. I am still learning to take out ableist phrases from my vocabulary. And so I don't know if that is a term that should be used. But it, I think what I'm trying to say, if I'm not using that terminology then, is there are things that are missing if we just say that what Hosea is doing is an anti-Saul rhetoric or that Hosea Gibeah is an anti-Saul rhetoric. Okay, so I'll lay out the options. So Gibeah is a place actually that Saul is literally from. It is a town in Benjamin, Benjamin. Many people have hitched their wagon to the sin of Gibeah being the events that occur in Judges 19. And for listeners who might not know, it is a terrible little story in the Bible where a concubine, a secondary wife, that is a, a translation that's also being currently debated right now, a, a concubine or the secondary wife of the Levite in the story is Zonaz. She betrays her husband and she leaves for her father's house. We don't know what Zona entails in this, but uh, I believe it's rhetorical. Uh, it doesn't really matter, actually. And we'll talk about that, too. <laughs> she then, her husband goes to get her. They then go on this journey to Gibeah. And in Gibeah, she is, and I am definitely keeping this short and sweet and missing a lot of detail. She is then gang raped and murdered. And the response on the part of the Levite is to then pick her body up, take her to his home in Ephraim, and cut her into 12 pieces. And he sends her body parts out to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, once again, this anti Saul polemic can come in the play because the only other time that something like this happens in the Hebrew Bible is when Saul does this in 1 Samuel 11. So once again, you have that anti-Saul. He's from Gibeah. Judges 20 and 21 continue to go on into beautiful and horrible, beautiful, not in its literal sense, but very ironic and sarcastic. In its horrible, horribleness, because misogyny begets misogyny and violence begets violence, and the city of Gibeah and the Gibeonite, Gibeonites, not that. Though that's a separate town. I, it, it, essentially, then other people discuss how Saul. It might be this sort of birth polemic against Saul, and that he is born of harem against other tribes and capture and rape of other women of other tribes. Essentially, he's a product of rape. Um, so it becomes people continue to try to make this whole tent an anti-Saul polemic. I think it falls short 
especially if one looks at the whole of all of these texts, but that is another topic for another day. But when I discuss uh, the book of Judges as well as Hosea and in their intertext as it pertains to the sin of Gibeah, I talk a lot about how we have to hold multiple interpretations at once. On one level, because of Hosea's own historical context, as well as Judges' historical context, we have these contexts of war, exile, um, displacement, or deracinated populations. We also have colonialism. We also have concepts of colonial mimicry as well in the text. And so it's complicated. We are dealing with a minoritized people group who are subject to violence and are also well-versed in that language as well because they have to be. And how do they then reckon or reconcile with everything that has happened given that actual historical context? And based on me saying that, I'm saying that while we can't just literally look at Judges 19 and go, oh, that didn't actually happen, so it's not that bad. It, it's still bad, okay? Uh, regardless of whether or not it's literal or figurative, it's horrific. But if it does depict the social body, if the woman's body does depict the social body of Israel in having gone through all of those things, and if Hosea is literally speaking to an audience was about to go through those things, but uh, we're dealing with a prophetic text that is speaking backwards in time, given final form, so on and so forth. But I am of the unpopular group that thinks that texts are dated much later than they actually are. Then we are either dealing with a narrative that is depicting Israel as inherently guilty and bad, and God as needing out just punishment. Or, and in that, we are dealing with a narrative of self-blame. We see that often in uh, the marriage metaphors throughout the Bible. How do we deal with these concepts of we betrayed our deity, which is often done using the terminology of zona to prostitute, to play the whore against a deny. But on the other hand, one could also read it as some of a subversive text. If we read it without the lens of victim blaming, then we have a text that goes, we, people don't deserve this kind of treatment. Um, this is inappropriate. The norms that make this kind of behavior okay are not sustainable. And while I would love to read that onto an ancient people group, I can't necessarily put my own liberal Western thoughts and conceptions onto a people group, period. And nor do I get to decide how they want to depict their trauma. But I think holding for multiple interpretations is interesting and uh, necessary because multiple what is more likely is both of those interpretations as they are being received in the communities that are hearing them are wrestling with how do we interpret these texts amongst ourselves. And so you may even have both of those interpretations in reception happening at the same time. Um, all said, I believe the sin of Gibeah is, in fact, the Judges 19 episode. I believe that it is not an anti-Saulite rhetoric polemic even though you could make the case that it 
was being used in that way. I don't think that was ultimately how it should be understood. I think it falls short for many reasons. And if I was to define the sin of Gibeah, it would be something having to do with hospitality and receiving people and less so anything having to do with King Saul himself. So that is the, you just got my dissertation in 15 minutes. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yes. I, so in there you, so the, so the notion that it didn't actually happen, mm. um, I, I think that's, it seems like you're saying that's irrelevant and I agree, whatever. So I'm 40, doesn't matter how old you are, let's say 25, but so no. <laughs> I came of age and 9-11 was the hallmark yeah. and the slew of strategic and geopolitical things that happened as a result of United States decisions saw violence and displacement yeah. and any number of horrors and therefore trauma. Mm -hmm. That's you being potentially 15 years younger than me. Let's not we're, 15. We're, we're adults. We're adults. And yeah, I'm, I'm being gracious because it's none of my business how old you are. And I'm only talking from my perspective, but having come of age, um, spent yeah. my adult life looking at a world that's like that. And it's, it doesn't even stop there. It's not even like, well, look at what the U S did The displaced oh, people no. who fled Iraq into Syria within a few years, we're facing a civil war there and on. And mm -hmm. that, okay, that in conjunction with some of the things I'm learning about how people negotiate texts, how communities have traditionally, whether they're Jewish, Christian, doesn't matter, how communities matter. have negotiated texts and engaged mm -hmm. with texts. I think the question of how do we understand uh, our environment and let's include trauma in that mm -hmm. environment. So this mm -hmm. is a modern conception. So this kind of goes yep. back into the transdisciplinary. I like that better than multidisciplinary, the transdisciplinary yeah. nature of biblical studies. So we're taking mm -hmm. a modern concept and putting it yep. on to ancient people. I think so long as you don't diagnose an individual, that's probably okay. I, I have no problem with that because I think ultimately people are people and we're not that special. But no. is that a good framework for understanding? Why is this a necessary thing for us to try and read in biblical texts? Yeah, yeah. What's fun is often when people use, and this is part of why the conversation about inter transdisciplinary biblical studies is contested currently, is because of the word anachronism. So it would be an anachronism for me to diagnose these ancient people, right? Because this is from this time period and I'm putting it onto somebody from a different time period, from a different context. And that's all well and good. But just because ancient people might not have had word for trauma, even though in the Greek, that's literally where we get the word trauma for wound. And so it wouldn't be what, but a couple of centuries later until they have the word, right? Just because they didn't have the word for that. They also didn't have the word for rape. They also didn't have our English words for certain things. Just because they don't have the words for it doesn't mean that they didn't understand that something wasn't right or that what happened to me here is affecting what I'm doing now today. 
And in fact, when we discuss, it's so interesting too that you bring up history and post 9-11 conceptions of trauma as well as, there's a fantastic book by Judith Butler that uh, really kicked me off in my own PhD studies on precarious lives. Whose lives are mournable in those situations? Who is us? Who is them? What what are the the ideologies behind it? Precarious Lives by Judith Butler. Yes. I just actually used Judges 19 a few weeks ago for a uh, student lecture on conceptions of violence and personhood in the Hebrew Bible. And it's difficult, right? Because... I was able to use so much of precarious lives to help us understand conceptions of violence and personhood in the Hebrew Bible. But also, I think it helps us to know that the pieces that we're working with are 3D. You spin them and turn them. They're not flat. We need to look at them from every angle. They're not one-sided or even two-sided. They are multifaceted. Stories are multifaceted in nature, and we have to analyze them as such. And so when we think about Judges 19 and if the story really happened, and you're right, even if it didn't, I don't think that's the point. Or if it did, if it did, that's horrible. Stories like this are still happening today. It's not, unfortunately, it's both horrific and also very banal. The point is, if it didn't happen, why is this narrative then here? What purpose is it serving? What does it, what is it doing? Which is what speech act theory touches on too. What do these words do to people, in between people? What is it trying to enact? What does it, it is literally, it's not just that we're having a dialogue, but that's something, an action, a verb is taking place here. And it will change what continues to occur. And due to the fact that we could have a discussion and we're going back and forth, any sorts of things could happen in this space. There are rules, there are conventions to what is normative in said space. And so when people break those rules, or even if I follow the rules, but it doesn't land for you, so it's infelicitous, um, it still is acting in certain ways. And yet it can also act differently for myself and for you at the same time, which makes all of this incredibly difficult because part of the field is that we have an interpretation and here it is. But also the beauty of the field is that we've been doing that with one another for quite a few years and we still haven't run out of things that we're saying that this could be what the interpretation is. And often, again, I think these things are happening all at the same time. All said, whether or not what happened is real in the text or not, when we use the lens of trauma to attempt to understand maybe even why this would be here, would this help them cope? Is this getting their own narrative out on paper so that they can work through it, which is a a sort of form that even modern psychologists use, like scriptotherapy, PTLI, so on and so forth. Written exposure therapy as well is another thing that is often used. But the main thing my wonderful and brilliant supervisor says is trauma survivors, trauma 
Traumatized people need trauma narratives in order to become trauma survivors. We are meaning makers. Humans make meaning. That's pretty much the entirety of our field. That's the entirety of our existence. We need things to make sense. What's hard is, one, not only when trauma happens, do we need a reason? Why did this happen? What just occurred? Why did this happen? And how is this going to continue to affect me? Not only that, but some of the ways in which people make meaning or make sense of things might have completely crumbled in the process of trauma. So, okay, I used to make sense of my life based on this deuteronomistic history frame, based on the fact that if I do good, then good things happen. If I do bad, bad things happen. Cool. If you thought you were doing good and bad things still happened, what do you do with your framework? In some cases, then you blame yourself, right? That I thought I was good, but I guess I was bad. Now I have some mourning to do. In another framework, you throw that out entirely. You go, wow, that did not work. That did not make sense given what I just experienced. How do I make a new framework for understanding what and this not just happened to me? And I think oftentimes we miss out on the fact that all of these things are happening in the biblical authors as they're writing these things. They also become the mediators for creating these narratives among their communities. And what's hard here is what I want to address is that when we think of trauma, we think of it comes from the word wound. We, we think of these people who are in a corner and they're curled up into a ball. They're weak. They can't do anything. And yet traumatized people exist among us every day. They are creative. They are brilliant. And they're wounded. It's a multiplicity of being. It's the multiplicity of being a human. And so when we understand humans to be doing those things, we also understand that there are also constructions of power that are at play. Um, while people may have lost their power, they might be wanting to get it back. They might be going, maybe my power was the problem. Maybe I need to create a new narrative so that we're sharing power. You have all of those things happening while people are trying to make meaning and make sense and rebuild in the wake of such things. And while we have examples in the biblical text of quite extensive pains, we have enslavement and all of the other things that I've just discussed. We have, again, rape. We have, we have systems of patriarchy, which are known to, in systems of dominant and subordinate people, we know that harms people. Now we don't have narratives of we don't actually have textual representations of people who are subordinate until the Israelites themselves become subordinate. And so we also have to make sense of what's happening maybe in the historical Ghana. I think we miss out if we don't look at trauma. And I think part of why we miss out is because we are not currently willing to address the fact that most of us are dealing with traumata and trauma in our midst. Most of us are walking through life in this capitalistic hellscape going, I just got to keep producing. I got to make sure food is on the table. I've got to survive. And so we're not considering that the, the intake and the things that are even happening to us, and not to get so political, but even the system of capitalism itself is 
problematic when it comes to our own bodies as humans. We are not, as a society, willing to discuss what that does to our bodies because we're so accustomed to just having to power through. And the sad reality is the ancient Israelites also had to power through. They had to keep going. Granted, we have depictions of lamentations, which are explicitly depictions of mourning and grief and loss and longing in the wake of losing their temple and losing their city. And yet, what I want to also address when we talk about lamentations as trauma literature is that the flip side of that coin is it could be seen as pure trauma, right? This is pure trauma. We're looking at it and call it for what it is. And in order to get through trauma, you have to feel. And so it is literally a both and of this is horrible. And I hate that they're feeling this way. And this is also some of the most healthy literature within the text because they're actually expressing their emotions. They're moving through. They're creating those narratives. Uh, they're creating poetry. They're creating song. They're being creative in the, the feelings that they're feeling that are incredibly valid. And so it is a both and of it's trauma literature. And trauma isn't just this, it is a terrible, horrible thing. But how people work through their trauma is just often not sexy. And so we also have a text that could be depicting some of the most healthy behaviors in the wake of trauma. It's just not cute. <laughs> That's a bummer. You've just, it is, yeah. You've added insult to injury. So in, in reading and understanding stories, so this one in particular, mm -hmm. and, and I just, I want to clarify something real quick. Should we refer to her as the concubine? Is that how we want to talk about her? I, I do. Um, okay. I, some people name her. I do not give her a name. She is nameless for a reason. Th that reason is also contested. That, that, um, kind, of, she, that she, kind of feeds into what I was about to ask, actually. Yeah, yeah. Should, we, then. should we read her story as like Wicked or Grendel? Or, and we, I can explain we, those if... <laughs> Do you want me to? Yeah. Okay. For, for the listeners, if you have not read Wicked or seen the play, it's a retelling of the story of the Wizard of Oz from the point yes. of view of the Wicked Witch of the West. And he, Gregory McGuire, names her Elphaba, after, and he uses L. Frank Baum's initials for that. It goes on into four books. I really like the series. I've never heard anybody talk about them. So this, is, this whole interview was just an excuse for me to talk about the Wicked. Love the, them. The, <laughs> They're really good. But me, then there's me, also witches are friends. So really? we're good here. Oh, yes. Uh, but then there's also, I think, John Gardner, was that his name? He wrote a novel called Grendel, and it is the story of Beowulf from Grendel's point of view. And Grendel is essentially oh, no a, a creature who lives nearby. And these idiot men moved in. And of course, he's going to eat them. They're on his land. Mm -hmm. And then they send in this big, strong guy with a tiny little head and he kills him. And I are we meant to read this story as her story, do you think? The loaded question. That is a loaded question. Of course question. it is. Of course it is. That's why you asked it. Yes, and. Is the, uh, she does not speak in the narrative. She does not speak. The only active agency she has in the text is when she leaves the Levite's house in the very beginning. 
After that, nothing. After that, she is acted upon. Now, if we were to, say, do an act of reading from the other side of the narrative, which other people have done, and it's fantastic and beautiful, actually, one of my favorite pieces, and I just have to talk about it here, one of my most favorite pieces on Judges 19 is done by um, a scholar named Esther Brownsmith. She's coming out with a book. I think it comes out in April. So you'll have to you'll have to get her on this podcast. She's essential, as all I'm saying. She does work on what is called critical fabulation, which is a concept done by English author and historian Sidia Hartman, where she talks about do we name this concubine? Many people have in a way just we see you, we honor you. And I felt that tension as well for myself, but also it felt like in naming her, I was staking my claim on her as well. That felt a little yucky. And what was helpful for me too was to recognize that sometimes in story, anonymity can serve as a sort of every person kind of function. When you read the text, you can insert yourself into the text because she doesn't have a name. Um, granted, every character in the story is a sort of every person representative figure. And so there's a lot of play that can enter in here. And how Esther does it is she sees, um, she sees the text from a viewpoint of critical fabulation and she reads the story of Judges as a play. And so all of the figures come out and they, they do the cycles. And it finally comes to her. And depending on who is watching, she is playing different roles. But the end of the piece is so beautiful because it talks about how she doesn't have a name. And she talks about how many have seen themselves in her character and have said to her, you are me. And she talks about from the vantage point of the concubine of the Pilagesh, when people said, you are me, that was the thing that felt most true. And I can't get over how beautiful and horrible that is at the same time. I think there is room for both. There is room for a very more feminist resistance kind of position towards the text that goes, hey, listen, she has no agency. And in fact, in chapter 20, when people ask the Levite, What's, what is this outreach? that the story that he tells is his story and it's not a complete story. She barely features in it. And if she does feature in it, it's because his property was damaged. Okay, so that's rough. So can we consider Judges 19 her story on that aspect? No. However, I think there is room for just how you shared those interpretations as well. That's happening often currently in rereadings of like Greek mythology as well. And I am loving every moment of that. Like Cersei? Um, Yes, I have it right here. Jennifer Saint does such a good job. I want to say there is a new one out. There was a new writing on Medusa that's phenomenal. I forget who it is that just came out with a new one the other day, but I have not read it yet, so I can't say anything about it. But I'm loving all of these yeah. reinterpretations of these stories. Like Elphaba, how can we imagine her as having more of a story than just you were a secondary wife and you were killed. 
you were actually a full human. So what was your story? How did you get to this place where you sold into this by the father? What was your life like? Who are you? And I think asking those questions of almost all of the biblical characters, I think is super necessary. And I'm personally, if that's all I did for the rest of my life, I'd be very content. But I, again, I think Esther Brownsmith does this stupendously. The article is called Call Me By Your Name. And yes, it is a play on call me by your name on purpose. Yes. Am I going to have to pay for that? That you? I don't think you sang enough for me to have Co- to pay for Copyrighted. That. Yes. I might have just broken some laws there. You just torpedoed this podcast. I think yeah, I have that in my prospective list of people that article title sounds familiar. It may already be in folder. Phenomenal. And I, I'm so sorry, Esther. I continuously bring you up and I hope it's not creepy. I don't think, I assume that if people spend time working on something, they, they like it when people talk about that. So that's true. That's, that's true. why you're here because you spent time working on something and I, I appreciated did. it. I, I was trying to think of a more, not more, but like, an equivalent contemporary or near contemporary example of kind of what I mean. If you read the records the Nazis made of the Holocaust, you were not meant to read those as being about the people they were destroying. Right. And I, so when you mentioned, yes, there's trauma in, in the Hebrew Bible, there's rape, there's the, but the, the victim of the rape, we're not meant to see as who we would understand. I'm bringing this up to contextualize. I think it's okay for us to take our values and our understanding of the world and say, I'm not interested in whether or not the people who wrote or orally transmitted this text were concerned with bodily autonomy. We are. It is important to us. Uh, Mm -hmm. The idea that abuse was not a thing for most people, that you could not be the subject of abuse for most people, uh, that, (laughs) I guess that's not a question. I just, I'm, this, it's so difficult to negotiate all of the ideas that we have in our heads and we're trying Mm -hmm. to understand ourselves through a lens that ancient people have given us. And I think they did an adequate job and that we can even take our lenses and apply them to what they gave us and see that still as wisdom. Is that fair to say? There's a question. I think it is fair to say. That is very fair to say. I want to say it's my friend, Monica Ray, who pointed me in the direction. I'm just like very keenly aware of citing my sources and where I get source information from. Um, Some people call it name dropping. I'll go with that too. There is a podcast episode done highlighting author Joseph Michal. Uh, He writes Appalling Bodies. Oh gosh, I really hope that's right. I Sometimes it feels like there's so much information in my head that I need to make sure that I'm actually saying things that are correctly. I said it correctly. I was right. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, Can that be a soundbite? I was right. Just... once I learn how to do sound bites, you'll be the first sound. <laughs> do you? I tell you what, I will cut a clip. I will cut a clip of that for you. Yes. I was right. 
Joseph Marshall in a podcast episode himself talks about flipping the, the script on the word anachronism as a bad thing and instead seeing as a, it as anachronism, so time on top of time. And because that's what it is, and that's what we're dealing with. Joseph uh, works a lot with queer theory and seeing seeing queer bodies in the biblical corpus. And a lot of people look at that and they go, you can't do that. They Conceptions of that did not exist. Maybe they didn't, but also they did. They also existed. So what do we do? Time on top of time has been super helpful for me in there. And I think that this kind of work is extremely necessary. If not for just adding texture and layers to what we have long thought we understood in the Bible, but also because it matters today, it matters how people wield texts today to harm and hurt. It matters if people can see themselves represented even. I think what's important is even when we talk about history and empathy and can we understand actors of the past. I think when we wield the word empathy, it's not to understand that we can literally place ourselves in somebody's shoes because we will never be able to fully embody or understand somebody else's experience. But it is to attempt and to recognize that is attenuated. It will never be complete. And that is so frustrating and also so lovely. People get to maintain their theirness. Their, their self, even as we try to understand, they get to maintain their subjectivity as even as we literally use them as objects for our own study. And I think maintaining those boundaries while also recognizing that they're fluid is, is important to, to the work that biblical scholars do, regardless of whether or not they want to admit that's what they're doing. Yeah. I don't know if that actually answered your question. I think my the answer to your actual question was just yes. And then I put more in the tub. I, I feel satisfied. Um, Good. Good. Is there any way to know as a reader of a text, specifically uh, an ancient text, if you're reading it in good faith? I think you. we have tools. I think if you are reading the text, I'm about to say some spicy things. I think if you are reading the text and you're like, I'm reading it literally. And we all know what that means. We know that means that somebody is just looking at the text, reading a line from it and deciding what that means then and there. That's what they mean by literal. Now, that's not literal. <laughs> that's just you deciding based on uh, somebody else's translated words, what you think it could mean. I think we have tools and excellent ones. Scholars have done incredible work. And we have done incredible work actually at making it fairly accessible to people outside of the ivory tower. I think BibleOdyssey.com does a fantastic job at making concepts super digestible. And to be fair, if scholars can't make it accessible for people outside of the ivory tower, then they don't actually know what they're talking about. They just know big words. And that's not helpful for anybody but themselves. That's an aside. We have excellent tools that we should be employing to discover 
a meaning of the text that is in good faith. We need to be employing tools involving history as well as literary tools, but we also need to see that those two tools in and of themselves are excellent and helpful, and we can really get a solid picture right from just those two tools. And yet even those two tools would benefit from more, dare I say, intersectional lenses of said things. Honestly, this is why I will never get tired of what I do. There's so many ways to view something. And what I want to say, honestly, for somebody who loves to teach um, undergraduate students as well as graduate students, the biblical text, is I think even though most often what's done not in good faith to understand the text so that it can be weaponized and wielded in certain ways that create in-group, out-group identities, um, exclusivity, et cetera, et cetera, can be really damaging. However, I think most people who are attempting to read the text in good faith, to find meaning, to use the tools that hopefully are accessible to them, and if they don't know they're accessible, I hope they, they are able to figure that out. I think that is possible, but it will always be in part. It will always be as the word is attenuated, never fully complete. And I think we have to be okay with that. And I'm not okay with it, but I'm okay with it. But yes, I think good faith interpretations are accessible and doable. So you mentioned intersectionality. Why? Okay. There's mm -hmm. two questions here. Great. Why should people not think it's scary? And what is mm. scary about it? Oh, yeah. Okay. So we'll start with the second question. Intersectionality. Why is it scary? It's scary because of, dare I say, it's scary because of misogyny and patriarchal assumptions about what feminism has to offer us, but intersectionality is not actually scary. We think it's scary or are told it's scary or we're told that it's not supposed to be used or implemented really just due to political-ish. However, it's not scary. It is a way of viewing life that I think most of us already view life with. And it is really just the belief that we all live at intersections of identities, right? And so I am made up of my gender, my sexuality, my, my class, um, where I come from globally, what is my ethnicity or my race? Where did I, what is my religion? Or did I have a religion even before? What am I made of? Some of that does have to do with some categorizations that I would love to not actually be a problem in our world. But unfortunately, identities as we currently exist in our society are also imbued with power and power relations. And so when we look at tech from intersectional aspects, we are taking the time to go, okay, so this is written from what perspective? Is this written from the male like the normative position is who is writing this text or what is considered most dominant. What do we do with voices in the text that might be 
not dominant. Where are the poor people in these texts? How are they described? Where are the differently abled people in this text? How are people depicted in these ways? And also to see, just to at least try and derive a picture of what life could be like for people who are not just the normative or depicted as normative in these texts. And that's difficult work, but it's necessary work. The problem with intersectionality today and why it's so scary is really, again, just due to the fact that if you point out that people aren't equal, you're challenging assumptions that may or may not be held. For most people, I would assume that literally spelling out intersectionality in that way as in its most simple bare bones form is not scary. To acknowledge that I am a white woman, this hetero, able-bodied, and because of those things, I really hold forms of power in every avenue except for my gender. That shouldn't be a scary thing to discuss. It should be just a natural, self-reflexive, I know where I'm at in this world. And I know that because of that, I may be missing some aspects. I may need to seek out aspects that are not readily available to me. And I think I naturally want that for myself because one, to make it entirely selfish, I love to know things. If I find out I'm missing aspects of knowledge because of how other people experience the world, I want to know. It is entirely selfish on my behalf because I want to know everything. I do. It is sometimes a problem. On the other realm, it's only scary if you feel like because of that, you have something to lose. And if what I have to lose when it comes to opening up my perspective and my world to other experiences is the fact that I have to acknowledge that life is unjust and that I need to work as much as I can to pull my thread to make things more just. If that's what I have to lose, so be it. Let's go. But others would see it differently and are threatened by that. And I want to acknowledge that fear is real, although it is also a delusion as well. It's real to people experiencing that fear. So in an effort to speak on behalf of them, which may actually bother them more than what you just said. I right. think I was three or four and the lady babysitting me asked me if I wanted a peanut butter sandwich. And I said, of yeah. course I want a peanut butter sandwich. Of course they do. And she said, I'm using crunchy and I'd never had crunchy. Yeah. And we went back and forth for a much longer time than we should have. And I started crying and I got yeah. upset. And then I ended up trying the sandwich. And if oh, you offered me, if you offered me anything but crunchy, that's a surefire way for us to not be friends at yes. the risk of insulting people. That's a great way of saying we are scared by what we don't know. And from my point of view, my legitimate, though incorrect, point of view, it, it was scary. Was it, was, it was new. Yes. It was new. I didn't want to do this. However, mm -hmm. I know people that when you bring something new and a different point of view, and especially when it's someone they can protect. So I, I'm thinking of 
um, a colleague who has a disabled child. And mm -hmm. there are words that if you use in front of this colleague, you are asking for doom to fall upon you. That's as close as yeah. I want to get to talking about it. They will wreck you if you use these words, not even in reference to their child, just in general. Mm -hmm. Because it's in their it's in their field of regard. They can see this thing and it is real and their love toward it. And I think if I don't want to I don't want to get off of your book, but the, but broadly speaking, the reason that your book is helpful in spite of the fact that someone could legitimately say this was not a concept that they had. That's fine. But neither is the level of partnership in your marriage, even conservative person in our Western culture in our day and age that that stretching your brain and getting some new ideas, because otherwise this text judges 19 particularly is really just grotesque really? and it's not very useful. And I know that because I grew up in churches and I read Did it you? and we didn't talk it. about it. I read it and I was like, where's this story going? And it just gets worse. That's where it goes. It fits the narratives that many people would have of Another good resource for this is good book that just came out by Jill Hicks Keaton. It doesn't fit the narrative of this is a really good book. It does not fit that narrative. So why would we tell you it exists in this text? She says that about this passage, the story particularly? Not necessarily. Not. Okay. Oh, actually, I think she does talk about this passage for a moment, but she I haven't goes into it. I haven't oh, it's read delicious. It I'm a library. I'm sorry. Uh, no, so am I just in different. You want to talk about Terry Pratchett or Kurt Vonnegut? I've got all of those <laughs> I, because I want to transition into recommendations. And I, and I don't I know that I don't have you all day. Uh, is there anything that you wanted me to ask about that we didn't get around to? And just before you start, I will say you have a standing invitation to come back and talk. <laughs> As much as you want about anything that you want. Appreciate that. That's so that's out there. Is there something that you wanted to cover that, that I left out? I think to even what you had said earlier about your friend who has a, a son who is disabled. And when he hears certain words, it becomes inflammatory. And for some, that's really scary. Oh, no. What if I say the wrong thing? Oh, no. For me, a different posture that has been helpful is that I, while my first, I recognize that in these circumstances, intent and impact are entirely different, right? The impact for your friend who resonates deeply with this experience and is harmed by that doesn't realize that your intent was not to do that. However, impact is ultimately of most importance in this instance. And even though intent is pure, it was not meant for that. In those circumstances, what has been helpful for me has been recognizing that when I am challenged, even if it is done rather abrasively, as you even said, it could be done abrasively, I get the opportunity to learn something new, to go, oh, I had no idea. And now I get to do better. That's exciting to me. And I think what that activates for a lot of people, though, and it has activated for me for a long time, is shame. We don't ever, most people don't want to hurt other people. 
And so when we find out that we inadvertently hurt someone, now I feel like I'm a bad person, right? And some of the inflammatory back and forth that can happen in those instances can also continue to activate that shame. And when we feel shame, we close up, we move into a self-protective stance. What's interesting is my questions is how is shame a driving factor in Saul's story? I, yeah, is. I'm just I'm just realizing. But, um, and what's interesting is today I was working through Kate Nan's book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. And shame is a driving factor behind logics of patriarchy in general, especially when people don't do what you think they're supposed to do in that logic. And the point is in recognizing shame when it occurs. And we can even talk about shame as it, as it shows up in Saul's story. And I talk about shame in Saul's story, especially, and I think we mentioned this earlier, how do we look at Saul's story from a holistic viewpoint? Uh, another great book that's coming out that I think I cite, but it hasn't come out yet. I had proofs. Barbara Theodis book is, and I reference her quite a bit, talks about rape culture in the house of David. And the difference in that when Saul is overtaken by the spirit, uh, he responds quite erratically, which we normally associate with, oh, he's going to prophesy. This is a good thing. Everything that's happening to him by the hands of Adonai is a good thing. And yet when the spirit enters David later on, David is, as Barbara writes, he's lubricated. So he's prepped for this penetrative experience. And so she actually views what happens to Saul as a sexual abuse by the hands of the Lord. Um, and this abuse coloring what then continues to happen throughout his life. So I see Saul as a morally injured being. That comes another from another reading, another fantastic book. Brad Keel does fantastic job of discussing moral injury and people who have been through war and systems, militaristic systems, how that can morally injure, especially when you go into the military and are trying to do good. Seeing Saul as a morally injured warrior, that's how Brad Keel reads it. I actually read Saul as being morally injured by his system of God themselves, of Yahwism. And especially when it comes to the sexual abuse that could be seen in the text. However, what's interesting is in being ruled by the shame of never moving through the shame until the very end, really. But what happens is, even in this story, I give Saul a lot of credit. He minoritizes and harms the, she is known as the witch of Endor, right? And I maintain the word witch because, as I referenced earlier, I love witches and I love the reclamation of that word in our society today. But she was not a witch. She was a necromancer or a media for all intents and purposes. And that's what she does in the text. She does her job well. The text does not condemn her other than the fact that Saul has essentially placed her in the borderlands. She lives on the border, probably in order to if she's caught, jump said border so she is no longer liable to said laws of the land. And in those instances, some people would read that and go, she's bad. No, she's bad because why? She's bad because of the laws that Saul placed. 
And yet Saul still feels like he can use her. I actually did another paper that I will will become an article soon here on reading that story through the lens of current abortion movements in the United States, which was jarring to say the least. But Saul still uses this woman, even though I argue that maybe he has moved through his shame due to the fact that this woman gives him this gift of receiving him for all of his flaws, for all of his yuckiness. It, she's still collateral damage. It's not like he undoes the law that has harmed her. He has used her for all of the goodness that she can give, and he leaves. And Saul is the one that ultimately benefits, even though obviously he himself in the next few chapters. But shame is a socially powerful tool. And yet, if we do not figure out as a society what it means to actually process and feel emotions and move through them, which is another reason why uh, the framework I even offer for the book is through the middle of the thick. And that's me, middle being trauma theory, thick being speech act theory. How do we move through these emotions that not only are happening in the text, but also in our bodies when we receive these texts, right? What do we do with shame? And I think shame is powerful in that it can be wielded in really harmful and negative ways, but it can also be extremely self-reflexive in ways that are helpful. But we have to be really careful with shame because there are things that we should feel guilt for, but things that we are not. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is the thing I did was bad. I want to believe in the inherent goodness of every human being. And so we need to be careful with how we wield shame in general in our society. And we need to be aware of when shame might be leading actions and really divesting from those things, even when it comes to doing the right thing. Am I doing the right thing out of shame or out of guilt? And how do I move through those emotions so that doing the right thing can actually be done from a different posture? I think I, I just talked for a long time about speaking. So I, I, I think in the vein of shame, I think speaking as an American in the 21st century, <laughs> we, we, sorry, because no, yeah. <laughs> so an interesting thing happened and it happened before us, but so something like the use of racial epithets. Became mm-hmm. over time unacceptable. Yes. So you want yes. to talk about shame as I, I am bad, guilt as the thing I've done is bad. I think in the backlash to the successes of saying, yes, uh, you, it is societally, the, the societal standard is now that you will accept people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. Oh, and you will not expect now shame to be inflicted on your queer coworker. For them to hide that identity, they can be open. What the backlash has been, oh, I'm bad, even though I don't do the bad. So it's not guilt. It's not, I'm not using racial epithets. I'm not using anti, anti-queer slurs, things like that. I just think, and just is such a pregnant word, but I just think, it, this is just my opinion. So you must be saying I'm bad. And there is a coalition forming 
around the backlash of that. And I, I think making white kids feel bad when you talk about slavery. Sh- sure. Uh, and look, uh, I said this before, born in Virginia, grew up between yep. Virginia and Texas. I've never lived above the Mason Dixon line. Yep. My understanding of the Civil War, and I know this isn't an American history podcast, but I'm an American history major, is that flag, the Confederates flew, is a traitor rag. That's what I treat. That's what I teach my son. Bless I'm an you. American. <laughs> I am an American. That's a traitor rag. Slavery and then eventually Jim Crow. Those were evils. I think the self-awareness, like that's the self-awareness that it takes to know if you're engaging in good faith. Uh, yeah. That is, it is a constant lacking. process sometimes. sometimes because there's a desire when someone who is vocally policy, uh, societally anti-gay is outed mm-hmm. to shame that person for having been a closeted self-hater. And that is not productive either. No, shame isn't productive, period. So the guilt of saying you treated people unjustly is different than saying you are bad. And that is something that we should not do. And engaging with these texts and accepting that trauma may be that you were mistreated because you were you knew that you were gay growing up and you were isolated and marginalized. And it may also be, I'll say this as someone who lived through Hurricane Harvey, when water stands on the road, I feel it viscerally. Yeah. Uh, and that is, it's all there and it's all happening. But to, to something that you mentioned, I think having grown up 20th, 20th century or 21st century American evangelical, I don't think the mechanisms and the disciplines for grieving existed that Judaism or, and you mentioned militaristic environments, the grieving that military cultures do is really unique in contemporary culture. And Mm -hmm. the grieving that Judaism is capable of, to my very limited outsider knowledge, is superior to the idea that you just, you just roll on through. You... Maybe some breathing Thank techniques, but yeah, or not even roll on through, just set it aside because mm-hmm. you're saying you're trying just to move through. Yeah. Sit with it for a moment. The quote that is so easy to throw out, you got to feel it to heal it. It rhymes. It must be true. Exactly. It's easy. It's memorable. You got to feel it to heal it. If you don't think you're being affected by things, your body will let you know in a few years. It will come up as a sickness or something like that. It'll, yeah. You'll know. Yeah, you can't ignore it. And we are a very ill society. And I think, too, when it comes to the shame that's being employed, should people feel a little bit of shame and guilt, specifically guilt for some of the things they're doing? One million percent. And I would hope that would be productive in them finally being reflexive and recognizing, I did do something bad. Maybe there's something that needs to change. That all comes back to what is unknown is scary. Change is very scary. And what's interesting about you bringing up the civil rights movement, as well as not the civil rights movement, but just enslavement in general in our history, and then Jim Crow, the white backlash to each of, to quote unquote progress that is happening in each of these uh, movements is very flooded with shame 
and it is coming from a place of shame. And I'm not saying that to then justify the actions that are happening out of shame. I, it's abhorrent. But that is where it's coming from. And until people begin to have tools to actually emotionally process the things that they are feeling in their body, they're going to continue to enact violence. And I don't think that's on minoritized bodies to fix this. (laughs) I think that's on us. But we... I think I just made a TikTok today about how I think therapy should be more accessible. Because, whoa, men will go do anything but go to therapy. (laughs) I I like the podcast, How Did This Get Made? They watch bad movies and they make fun of them. Bad movies. And somewhere, I think it was like New York Ninja. It's an episode they did within the last couple of weeks. And they, and one of the, one of the audience members, when they stood up, they said, so men will even become ninjas rather than go to therapy. Yep. I want to, I, so I want to add a layer of, to something that there's in my study of American history. One of the things that I'm coming across is, so one of the criticisms of the reformation from the, the Catholic church at the time was this is going to throw everything into disarray, yeah. right? There's going to be too many differential readings and, and they were not wrong that's no that's what that happened it they were not incorrect yeah i i think what we've seen for sure since the 1960s is that the successes mm-hmm. of civil rights act voting rights act they cost us things mm-hmm. that, that's a legitimate claim that they cost things and i think navigating the conversation of change has to build in yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to cost you. You you may even come at a loss. But that might be what needs to happen. And that need that's a very honest uh, I think th- so this is where the the conversation of progress I don't really care for. I think it's an interpretation of history that's just much too reductive. I don't think history's moving in any one direction. I think that's yeah. I think that's a very primitive and and childish way of understanding time and history in general. I think we have relationships and I think we have neighbors and that's how we navigate the world. And I feel like that's what you're saying, right? It's not the entirety of your book, but you're saying that, right? We are intensely interconnected and we keep believing that we aren't. And even in this conversation of what is it going to cost, even as me for a white woman, what does it cost? It might cost me something. And I'm also willing to pay it. Like when, when, when we also see what the benefit could be, when I see something that I think is cute on a rack, I'm going to purchase it. It's going to cost me something. And it might actually prohibit me from doing something else in the future because of what I've spent, right? But man, I could go on a long tangent when it comes to the metaphor I just made because uh, there's so many holes you could poke in that too. Can I refer, I would refer people back. I know the episode is already out. It's hard to hear. The audio is not great, but read Watership Down and then go read Stanley Hauerwas essay on story formed communities. I think Mm, honestly, no matter what your belief system is, I think if you could get a group of people together and you guys can tell each other a story together that is going to guide you ethically in ways that it can't be beat, in my opinion. Story is intensely powerful. 
And we need to be listening to each other much more than we are talking over them. That's for sure. And I say that as somebody who kind of talks over everyone. Well, on that note, who, Mm -hmm. okay, people that, places that people can go to listen or read. So podcasts, YouTube, books, blogs, articles, like brain dump what you want people to be going and looking for. I know you gave a bunch, but this is in addition to everything you just gave. And it'll all be in the show notes. Are you talking in reference to my book or just in general? Whatever you want, because once you answer the question, like for biblical studies, I will follow up with what do you read for fun? So if you want to pack it all in there together, that's fine. It'll be in the show Mm -hmm. notes for people to follow links. Excellent. Okay. Literally looking at my little bookshelf over here. What was so sad was in order to move to Europe, I had to sell 95% of my books. That was probably one of the most painful things that has ever happened to me ever. Um, if, if I may, uh, no. when I walked back in the house after when we were doing demo, there were three things that I lost in the house. My, there, there was one that was a box of souvenirs, mementos, my belt. I was a blue belt in jujitsu at the time. It was covered in mold. There was no way of reclaiming it. I had to buy a new one. Literal blood, sweat, and maybe even some tears in there. And then my books were just a pile of pulp on the floor. And that was, I. so I'm not saying that's not a one-up. I feel you on that one. I don't believe in one-upping. We all feel paid. Okay. I will say that some of my favorite, a lot of these are actually in the book itself, uh, which is not surprising. Um, I'm talking about Karen O'Donnell and Katie Cross's works. Their first book was called Feminist Trauma Theologies. It's an edited edited compilation. And then they had a second one released in that vein on Bearing Witness. And those are phenomenal just in general. I will always and forever cite texts after terror by Rhiannon Graybell. Always and forever. I love that book. Actually, uh, another one that I don't cite enough in my, in this book would be The Myth of Normal by Gabriel Matei and Daniel Matei. They do a phenomenal job of just mapping out how we just decided that we're not going to actually deal with trauma in our society, even though we are living in a trauma that it'll work in a trauma. Yes. Um, in a world that is constantly perpetuating trauma onto our bodies. <laughs> in a trauma, that's, that's it. Oh, shoot. It's so hard to do this. One of my all-time favorites for just a, a book that has guided me in my life would be Sarah Offsman's Living a Feminist Life. Um, yeah, it's interesting because a lot of Sarah Ahmed's work um, on shame is what I cite as well um, in her cultural politics of emotion. I've also worked with her on the politics of fear in Judges 19 and the rhetoric politics of fear in Judges 19 as it pertains to current migration conversation and Judges 19. So I love Sarah Ahmed, period. I think I've already said Jill Fix Keaton's most recent release, Good Book, but that came from her first book, which she wrote with, with Calvin Kincannon on the politics of the Museum of the Bible. 
So that was fun. Okay. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. I haven't read it, but I am familiar with it. Oh, it's a good time. I also grew up evangelical. I find these books to be quite helpful in making sense of my childhood. But last but not least, I was just looking at it. Last but not least, I want to highlight uh, Megan Goodwin's Abusing Religion. Um, And she just talks about the complicated ways in which um, abuse is depicted in religious settings and not to... um, not to excuse it, but in that certain narratives make it seem more out there instead of the fact that it's happening constantly and that most of us who have gotten out of those settings without being abused are lucky, statistically speaking. But she does a great job also of just framing religion in general and helping people to understand it. But those are just the quick ones I would reference off the top of my head that I love right now. Any podcasts? I know you mentioned a podcast, but I don't think you said what it was. I have no idea what it was. To be honest, I'm about to say something extremely unpopular. I'll just edit it out if I don't like it. (laughs) I I struggle to listen to podcasts. I get that a lot. I I really struggle. I'm jealous of people that, that are able to enjoy them and take them in. I struggle to take them in. On that vein, I struggle with a lot of sensory input in general. That's just a more of my neurodivergent thing. I struggle with contesting sensory inputs happening all at once. And if I'm doing something and listening to a podcast, it just messes with my head. That's fair. So no favorite podcast said this. Okay. That's, ouch. No, that's fine. Okay. What about for fun? What do you read or watch? Oh, yeah. I do a lot of reading for fun. I, again, I had to get rid of a lot, but one of the most favorite recent reads was by, it was the book Babel by, her last name's Nalf. Okay. I think it was R.F. Kuang. Is that the novel? Yes. Hold on. I'm pulling it up right now because I locked it. R.F. Kuang. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You are correct. I just ate that one up. It was delicious. I love dark academia novels. And just like we talked about earlier, I'm also loving the rewriting of like Greek mythologies. I have one up here that I'm about to take up called Atalanta by Jennifer Saint. I'm excited to read that one soon. But there's also a few people who are doing those same undertakings in like biblical narratives. There's one that just came out called Lilith. I have one up here called The Book of Eve. I can't wait to start reading, but I also love memoir. I'm a sucker for memoir and really just love to read, period. So often I find that I most of my workday is reading and then I get on the couch and I read. So I'm pretty much buried in a book and it's no wonder that my eyesight is getting worse and worse by the year. <laughs> reading can't be responsible for anything bad. So I, no. won't, I won't accept that. Anything but goodness. Yes. Yeah, I, man, I found out with the podcast that reading digital copies of things is easier to make my notes because otherwise I'll be going through hundreds of pages of post-it notes. So it's easier to transcribe stuff. Uh, But once I started doing that, my Kindle app tells me how many days in a row I've read. So there is this internal and I guess kind of external electronic peer pressure. If you want to end a 140 day streak, be my guest, but... 
It's good. You're going to see it. Like, please go. Like, Kindle's going to show up to your house. Okay. I'm trying to remember what book it is. I think it's a recent, it's a recent book about monsters in the Bible and I am blanking on the author's name. Oh, Esther Hamori. Yeah. So fortunately. She also has done phenomenal work. I worked with her stuff on My Witch of Endor. Yes. But, but here's a cheat is that I have the Kindle and the Audible version and it'll update you the Kindle. You do at the same time? Oh, no, but I have a really long commute. I have like an hour commute to and then an hour home. But it'll update the Kindle version, so I get credit for that. <laughs> but that's not what I want to read to go to bed. So I'm reading, I think okay. it's Zoe is Too Drunk for This Apocalypse. It's the second book in a series. Okay, yeah. that's amazing. The Boy, first one, the first one is, check it out. because the So the first book is called Futuristic Violence and Fancy Suits. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's what Literally. I was like. Yeah, it I'm going to check right. this out. Yeah. Sorry. I know I asked you. What else? Anything else? for fun? Who's your favorite? Who's your favorite author? If I said, I'm going to go get you a book. You're going to be stuck in this cell. What's who's the author I'm getting you? Donna Tart. Okay. Don't never heard of her. What's, he is a they're a love it or hate it kind of person. Very much along the realm of dark his, dark academia. Their most famous novel would be The Goldfinch. The Goldfinch. Okay. All it right. became a, a TV series or a movie, I think. It but sounds, I don't sounds watch, familiar. I don't watch books that were made into movies. They ruin everything. It just Man, makes me upset. Sometimes it's tough, but I just listened to a biography of Terry Pratchett, and I have not watched any of the... I don't know if you're familiar with the Discworld series, but they made some adaptations of the Discworld, and I want to get through to the one, the like the latest one in the series that they did, because I really want to watch it, because apparently he was really happy with what they did. And then also like the stuff that Neil Gaiman has made, <laughs> American Gods, Good Omens, which he wrote with Terry Pratchett, and then Sandman. I have watched those, but that's because I have a deep and abiding affection for Neil Gaiman. And I just want to be supportive of any and everything that he does. I think he's fantastic. I hear that. I hear that. I will say on that realm, a TV series I did like of a book adaptation, Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. Where is that available? It's on Apple TV. Okay. But the book just destroyed me in every way that is good. Okay. It is a telling of multiple generations who have experienced Japanese imperialism in Korea. Okay. And then living in Jap Japan as Koreans in the diaspora and thereafter. Before. You certainly contain multitudes. Meanwhile, okay. I also have a giant Eevee tattoo of a Pokemon right here. I'm also just, I love to play Animal Crossing. That's how I turn my brain off is video games. Cool. The cozy ones. They have to be cozy. The cozy ones. Yeah, they have I'm, to be closed. That, that's a, this is a thing I try to explain to my son. I'm bad at them. So and, it's only when I'm going to spend a really long amount of time doing something and failing at it repeatedly on my own, like with no one watching. That's the only time yes. I'm going to play video games. If you don't have anything else, I feel comfortable calling this one good. I'm good for it. Thank you so much for being here. No, this is lovely. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and rate the podcast on your favorite platform. 
If you are interested in following, supporting, or engaging with the podcast anywhere else, check out the link tree that I've hyperlinked in the show notes. Take care. I was right.